Hi, everybody. My name's Dan R., and I am an alcoholic. Yeah, and Charlie did ask me before, but uh, my home group meets uh, at this time, or just about this time, 730, at the Watt House. I don't know if anybody here has ever been to the Watt House in Litchfield Park, uh, 7.30 on, on Thursday night. And that's the reason I turned them down. Eh, part of the reason, anyway. Yeah, my sobriety date is uh, July 31st, 1988. And uh, I got sober at the Watt House. Uh, yeah, I won't dwell a whole lot, I hope, on my what it was like. Uh, I like to talk more about what happened and what it's like now. But uh, to qualify a little bit, uh, my first DWI was in San Diego in 1972. I was a young naval aviator, and uh, I made some wrong decisions and got blottoed once again and uh, got picked up. And uh, back then, uh, didn't take a whole lot. Uh, I paid a lawyer $500, and uh, charges were reduced to reckless driving. And he pleaded with the judge, he said, you don't want to ruin this uh, young naval aviator's career, do you? Basically what he said. So I didn't pay any consequences other than a few bucks. Uh, I had to go to one AA meeting as a result of that. And I picked the last day that I was given by the court to get to a meeting, and it was downtown San Diego. And uh, it wasn't, it was in a rough part of San Diego. And I arrived just before the meeting started, right in the back of the room, smoke-filled room. I was a smoker back then, but this was, uh, this was ridiculous. I mean, uh, you couldn't see the front of the room from the back of the room, almost. Uh, but I wasn't like you guys. You know, I wouldn't like you guys. And I was too smart, you know, to be going to AA meetings anyway, you know. And uh, uh, I was so smart it took me another 16 years to walk in and be ready, you know. Uh, but, uh, okay, so I... Uh, Stayed out of trouble. You know, I was a periodic drunk. My first drunk was when I was 16 years old. And uh, I drank the same way pretty much throughout my whole drinking. Uh, well, I was a blackout drinker. I blacked out that first night, or first time I've been drinking. And uh, got mad and put my fist through my mother's bedroom door. Scared the crap out of her and was so remorseful the next morning. I got up and rode my bicycle to church and said a prayer, I'll never do this again. And uh, that didn't happen. I did it uh, 
the drinking part many, many times again. Uh, fast forward to uh, uh, 78. That's when I got my second DWI. I was, a, I was still in the Navy. I was a flight instructor out of Pensacola, Florida, and I was, it was night flying, and the weather got bad, so the flights canceled, and we went to the Oak Club, and I drank too much, called my wife and said, Honey, you need to come pick me up. And there was a pause in the phone conversation, and she'd, she just about had, had it. And she said, I think it would be better if you stayed on base tonight. Just check into the BOQ and uh, sleep it off. And I'll show you. So I got in my brand new, it, was, it wasn't even three months old, uh, Cutlass. And on the way home, this, this base was about 30 miles from where we live. And uh, on the way home, I got involved in an accident. I, what I think I did, I passed out, went off to the road, and hit a car. And then my vehicle ended up in this farmer's field. I got out of the car. You know, I had my seatbelt on. I got out of the car and immediately looked around, didn't see anybody, and I said, i got to get out of here. So I tried to run. And I was in this recently plowed farmer's field, and I'd take one step, maybe two, and fall flat on my face. And I got back up again and did that three or four times, and I finally said, I had a moment of clarity there, and said, I'm not going to run away from this place. So I walked back to the car and waited for the cops. And luckily, the two people in the car, uh, I, the girl got hurt something about her ear. I never did find out the, the whole story, but uh, by this time the Navy wasn't, wasn't really putting up with my drinking habits. So uh, uh, I ended up deciding to, if I can't play on the first team, you know, I was I wasn't on the first string anymore with the Navy. So I said, I'll get out. And my drinking progressed till 1988. Found me here in uh, Phoenix. I had moved from Houston and came to Phoenix to find work. Houston at that time was oil was it was in the middle 80s, and oil took a nosedive, and. Uh, it, 4,000 foreclosures on homes a month out of Houston at that time. So my, my home was one of those that got foreclosed on because I was unemployable by this time. And uh, I came out here because my folks lived in Litchfield Park and said, hey, business is booming out here. Come on out. So I did. And looked around for work, and within a month I had three offers. 
and uh, I was good for the short run, you know, the sprint, uh, at the most 100 yards, but I couldn't last, you know, any distance. Uh, I couldn't fool you long enough, you know. So, uh, my ex had had it. I got drunk one more time. I'd been kicked out of my house for a month, and I was living with my folks. And I got kicked out rightfully so. And uh, I went tubing down the Salt River. That was my last drunk uh, uh, in uh, July, I mean, in, uh, yeah, July of 1988. And I had planned that drunk for a month. You know, I was a mem member by way of my wife. I was still married by my wife uh, of a uh, workout facility. And we had planned to go as a group, about 10 of us. Well, the date finally hit, and I was the only one that was still going. But I was going to and down the hall. So... The whole three to four hours, well, I had planned to buy three beers. And anybody that's been tubing down the salt, one of us anyway, or three of anything for three to four hours isn't near enough. So it ended up to be, the drink of my choice ended up to be uh, Coors Light, because nobody can get drunk on Coors Light. And uh, so for the whole trip, I was just obsessed with standing up on this inner tube. And I wore myself out physically. And near the end, I fell in rather a deep part of the, the river. At least I thought it was deep. And I, as I was sinking, I thought, you know, I could end this thing just right now. And then I had like, another moment of clarity and said, what the heck are you thinking, Dan? And I start stroking for the surface and obviously I made it. But uh, that night I had borrowed my folks' car and uh, got into a little, little bit of a fender bender and uh, crippled on home. And the next morning I didn't know what a family intervention was, but I found out. That's how I got into this program, was through a family intervention. And it was conducted by two of the three women in my life. My mother, my soon-to-be ex, my little, I think Stephanie was about six or seven then. She wasn't there. My dad... Uh, was there for about 15 minutes and then he excused himself. Anyway, my mother and my ex, soon to be, uh, told me what my drinking had meant in their lives, what it meant in their lives, you know. And of course, they caught me on the day after. You know how we feel on the day after. We're, we're remorseful and, you know, hungover and. And uh, they caught me at a bad time, you know, and uh, I had to agree with what they were saying. But anyway, my mom summarized 
the family intervention, she said, Dan, I'll give you a choice. You can sleep here tonight, all right? And that means you're going to an AA meeting held at the Watt House, the church at Litchfield Park. And, and the meeting is at 7.30 on Thursday night. Or you can be looking for a place to stay because you're out of here if you decide not to. And I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but it didn't take me long to figure out, I think I'll go to that meeting. And my mom didn't know a thing about AA, but she 12-stepped me into this program. She's still with us. She's 96 years old. And I've been given an opportunity to make lifetime amends to her. At any rate, so there I went to my first meeting at the Watt House, and you know how we are when we first come in. We we look like deer in headlights, you know? But I, I couldn't figure out how this guy knew I was a newcomer. But his name was Chuck Cervaki. And this guy scared me. He talked like this. He'd had cancer, and he had holes in his throat. And he can't. He was a lieutenant, retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And uh, he came up to me and said, "Are you looking for me?" And I didn't know who this man. This man's name I was looking for was Dick. I didn't know who he was. So I said, is your name Dick? Hoping that it wasn't. And he said, no, my name's Chuck. And it was Chuck Cervaki. And he was my second sponsor. My first sponsor was Dick. He wasn't there that night. But uh, I, had, I had two sponsors. Chuck took over for Dick while he wasn't there. And I don't remember much about that first meeting other than the fact that I cried pretty much the whole way through it. I'm a big crybaby, I found out. And uh, when it came time for me to, to share, all I could say was, I, my name is Dan, and I think I have a problem with alcohol. And then I said something like, well, I gather we're talking about what's happened to us, and I said, I'm not ready to talk about that yet, and passed, or they told me to pass after I said that, so uh, I don't know what it was, but that very first meeting, there were some men there that if they weren't lying to me, that they had something that I wanted. I didn't know, have a clue what it was. But they, number one, they were happy, or appeared to be happy. They were laughing, and that pissed me off. <laughs> First time I went to, uh, or, you know, you, you call your sponsor up and you're whining to them. I remember, I think this was the first time, I said, Chuck, I mean, uh, Dick, they're, they're laughing at the meeting, at these terrible stories people are, are relating to them. And... I soon came to find out that I was about ready to get a teachable moment because he said, 
Dan, sit down. He said, I know a couple things about laughing that you might not know. And I said, what, Dick? And he said, uh, well, laughing is a form of identifying. These people are identifying. They're not laughing at the story. Something in their life has happened similar, and they're just identifying. And he said, the second thing he said, I didn't like a whole lot. He said, Dan, there's something else about laughing. You cannot think and laugh at the same time. And for you, that's a good thing. So keep laughing, he said. And he was right. I can't think and laugh at the same time. So uh, I wasn't a very good uh, sponsee or pigeon. Dick Dick was from Boston, and uh, I was a pigeon you know, to people back east. And uh, uh, he knew it. He knew I wasn't doing the steps. And when I got here, I was sure of a couple things. One, that power is knowledge. Knowledge is power. And my problem was, yeah, I drank a little too much, but I just didn't know enough you guys were going to help teach me. I mean, the Navy taught me how to fly an airplane. You guys can teach me how not to drink. Or I didn't know anything about AA, even though I would have tried to take 10 minutes of your time to explain it to you when I first got here. I didn't know a thing about AA. I didn't know if you were going to teach me how to drink like a gentleman or what. Uh... The only time I ever convinced my dad of anything, my dad was a retired Navy captain, aviator. I wanted to be like my dad. He was as straight arrow as you could find. He knew John McCain and his family, and he was a personal family friend. He was a straight arrow. And he flew to, when I was still living in Houston, he flew down there and... uh, because my my wife at the time said, hey, Dan needs help. He's beyond my help. And I convinced my dad that I got this drinking thing. I can stop. And that's the only time I think I ever convinced my dad of anything, you know. Uh, but I couldn't. And I should have realized then that knowledge is not power. I should have realized it after I read the first several stories in the big book. You know, they all talk about, well, I know this, so I'll never get drunk again. You know, the guy that goes to Europe is uh, seen by Dr. Jung for a year, you know, and he's never going to get drunk again, and he didn't even make it out of Europe before. I think he went to Paris and uh, was drunk before he even got back to the States. But, yeah, I I didn't see it. I didn't see it. So, okay, I believed that knowledge was power. So I wasn't powerless. I just didn't know enough. If I knew enough, I could manage my life, too. And if you needed help managing yours, I'd be glad to do it, you know? Uh, And then something else I believed. 
if I thought something through, I was doing action. I believed that when I got here. If I was able to think it through, but that's as far as I ever got, was thinking. My problem initially in the program was I wasn't willing to do the action. Okay, so I'm not doing the steps. My sponsor, after about three months, who I'm not calling, except to wine or something, and says, Dan, what's changed in you? And this, I said, everything, Dick, I'm not drinking. My higher power, for whatever reason, removed the obsession for me to drink within that first, somewhere in that first month. To, at the most, to two months. I didn't even have a thought of drinking. I was on cloud nine. You know, I was at work. First time I got in trouble at work for uh, breaking for breaking the traditions was I was on fire with AA and uh, telling people in the middle of our reception area. I worked for a light bulb. So I flew airplanes. I ended up selling light bulbs for a living for 25 years. Uh, in our reception area, and I was talking AA. And I had only had this job for about a week or two. And I knew that the owner was in the program, because the fourth day I was at work, I was compelled to walk into his office and tell him, hey, the greatest thing in my life has happened. I'm an AA. And he said, oh. He said, sit down. He'd had 15 years in the program. So I felt my higher power put me in the right work environment. I couldn't keep a job. So anyway, he calls me into the office after he hears me uh, you know, on fire with AA in the reception area. And he says, Dan. He said, anybody talk to you about anonymity? And I said, no. I said, you're talking about people that might be working here that might be in the program. I might be one of them. It, you can break your own anonymity, but don't be breaking anybody else's. And I'm going, oh. See, I, hadn't, I read the first 164 pages, but that's all I had done. So anyway, my, my sponsor has asked me a question after about three months and says, Dan, what's changed? I said, everything, Dick, I'm not drinking. And he looked at me and said, sit down, Dan. And I'm going, okay, here we go. He said, that's the only thing that's changed in you. He said, when you got here, you were a drunken, rotten, selfish, self-centered son of a gun. Now you're a sober, rotten, selfish, self-centered <laughs> son of a gun. And I wanted to smack this sweet old man from Boston that had 29 years in the program, you know, because he was right. It pissed me off. But I still didn't. Uh, I still didn't become willing, you know. In the back of the book, in Appendix Two, it talks about who's going to make this deal. WHO: the willing, the honest, and the open-minded. I wasn't any of those as it was associated with Alcoholics Anonymous and alcoholism. So 
yeah, I did the first three steps pretty much on my own. And then came to step four, and I didn't like that. I dug in, and if anybody asked me in, in my home group, Dan, what step are you on? I'd say, I'm on step four. I'm working on acceptance. Don't bother me. And it worked about half the time. But I, I went to a, a Saturday morning men's group at uh, New Hope Alano, and at that time it was up uh, off of Cactus in 94th or 91st, somewhere around in that area, Avenue. And there was this retired uh, uh, bar, former bar owner from Chicago by the name of Don, and Don would check me out. He was just a little guy, a little squirting. He'd check me out every Saturday morning, and I'd walk up and he'd say, Dan, are you grateful? And I said, yes, Don, I'm grateful. He said, well, why don't you show it? And on real bad mornings when I'd come in and I knew I was, I was not grateful, he'd ask me, and I said, sure, Don, I'm grateful. And he said, well, why don't you tell your face? <laughs> yeah. I still didn't get this thing that it's not an outside conditions. This is an inside job, you know. I thought that when I got the big check, when I made the big sale, when my wife was liking what I was doing, you know, when I'd go work over at my dad and mom's house and got an attaboy for it, you know, outside stuff. I thought that was 90% of my life was outside conditions. Was the mailman late? Did I break my shoestring? The little things bothered me more than the big stuff, it seemed like. But I... Uh, I sat and listened to a very good speaker, and he said, you know, he had thought that 90% of his life was outside conditions, or the conditions of his life. And he said, that's not so. That's only 10%. 90% is how I respond to it. And I didn't know how to respond to life. That was the bottom line for this drunk. And I knew it. And uh, my sponsor kept saying, do the steps. They teach us how to respond to life. But that's action. And I wasn't willing to do the action yet. Again, I was under what I thought was a pink cloud. I've come to understand there is no pink cloud for this alcohol. I was living under the grace of my higher power. And he, he kept me sober. 18 months, I was driving to Tucson. That was part of my territory, selling light bulb. And I was coming home, and I looked up, and it must have been a spring or a fall day because it was cool. I had the windows down. Looked up and there was moisture in the air as there were clouds. And, and I just knew everything was going to be okay. 
It was like a thin mist, like a blanket almost, had fallen over me, and I knew everything was going to be okay. I didn't know why, didn't care. And I got back home, and all of a sudden, I was willing. I was as honest as I could be at that time, and I was open to doing what my sponsor suggested that I do. And that's when I started to progress in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I did the steps uh, under a sponsor. You know, first time I did step four and five was with a newcomer. I was still trying to work this deal by myself then. So I, naturally I didn't get very far. But uh, under good sponsorship, my sponsor during that 18-month period knew I wasn't doing anything, so he got me into service, and that's what saved my butt. So if you're having trouble getting into action and doing the steps and doing what your sponsor suggests, definitely uh, get into service. I mean, uh, uh, I, I found out that I could actually care about somebody else and think about somebody else other than myself. Uh, okay, so... I'm doing, I'm doing service. I've done the steps. You know, my first sponsor told me, he said, Dan, buy a dictionary and carry it around with it because the words you think you know, you don't know. And it only took me 22 years later, I bought one of these big book concordances, and I was working with this fella, and it, and we came across the word fear, and we started talking about it. You know, false evidence appearing real. Uh, typically with me, it's something that I, I'm afraid I'm going to lose that I think I own or something that I think I deserve that I'm afraid I'm not going to get. You know, uh, and a voice in the back of my head. My, my first sponsor had been... Uh, had passed away several years prior to this. He said, Dan, look it up. And I told myself, I don't need to look up the word fear. I know what the word fear means. So he told me again in my head, and so I said, okay, Dick. Started reading the definitions in here. And agitation, alarm, anxiety. Dismay in the anticipation of, or in the presence of danger, pain, or disaster. Dread, apprehension, the emotionally, the emotion inspired by what arouses one's deep respect or reverence. That's the fear of God. And it says, we don't use it in that definition in the big book. That's what the note in here says. But the one that put a target on my back was negative imagination. I read that and said, holy crap, I go negative on everything. And I said, that's fear? And I started checking it out. 
Whenever I went negative, I asked, I stopped what I was doing and asked myself, what am I afraid of? And that was one of the, the only emotion I knew when I got here was fear. And when in the big book it talks about a hundred different forms of fear, I think I could name at least a hundred and one. You know, uh, I used to run my day by trying to avoid what I feared the most that day. Uh, that's helped me. So try it, check it out, and see if see if it uh, if you haven't heard that before or read that definition in here. In here. Uh, resentment. When I got here, I thought there was justifiable resentment. I thought it was okay to be pissed at my my father-in-law, who had done something to my daughter that I I'm not comfortable in talking about to anybody. I've talked about it to one person, actually more than one now. But uh, I knew this program was working when my father-in-law called me after my daughter had told me what he had done, and we she was only eight at the time, and we took her to the psychiatrist, and uh, he said, yep, it happened. And uh, he lived in Florida, and I went to other lawyers trying to figure out what I could do to this man, because I wanted to physically get into an airplane, fly down to Florida, and beat the crap out of him. And I knew this program was working when he called me within a week of my daughter talking, telling me, and was trying to make, I won't say amends, excuses, and uh, the fact that he was saying it only happened once. And I was able to calmly, I think I was calm, say, cast. I have a problem with alcohol. I'm sick. I went and got help. I suggest that you might be sick, and I suggest you go get help. And I hung up. And I was able to get to a neutral place with him. You know, I, uh, there's no way I'm going to be sharing uh, a meal with him or hanging around him, but I was able to get to a neutral place with him, and I knew this program was working. But later I, I found that resentment has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with what that person has done to me or to someone I'm, I'm supposed to protect. It has everything to do with how I respond to it. And uh, I'm going to digress here to a, uh, a very famous uh, psychiatrist was being interviewed on the Hour of Power by uh, Dr. Schuler. His name was Frankel. 
And he was a Jew and had gone through the concentration camps and his whole family had been killed. And the, the doctor Schuler asked Dr. Frankel, how did you get through it? And he said, he said, one day I realized that they controlled my whole life except one thing, and that was how I was going to respond to it. And once again, I'm getting this lesson about responding. And I think he hit the nail on the head for me, for this alcoholic. I didn't know how to respond. These steps teach me how to respond to life on life's terms. You know? All I got to do is pick them up and put them into practice. Uh, I came here thinking I only had one problem, that I drank a little too much, you know. And you guys have shown me, and it's taken a lot of repetition, a lot of good sponsorship, you know, a lot of good fellowship to get it, you know. And... uh, I've come to, to believe that's pretty much the only way I'm going to learn anything is, is through repetition and through practice. So I've got to be the one to do the action. You know, I can't think my way into right acting, but I can act my way into right thinking. And I, I, I've been sober over 30 years, and I constantly have to remind myself of that. I thought that by this time I would have reached the level that, you know, now I constantly have to remind myself. You know, when I'm afraid, I when I'm anxious about something, when I have negative imagination, I ask myself, what am I afraid of? Face it, and chances are there's nothing there. Because if the bear walks into the room, God gave me the ability to be afraid, and I either fight or I run, you know? But it's that self-generated fear, you know, that's between my two ears. That's my problem, and that's 90% of it, at least. Uh, Yeah, this is a great deal. The 11th step, i got to talk a little bit about it. I started going to an 11th step meeting uh, at West Valley at at a location on Friday at noon. And uh, they do meditation five minutes, and I'd never meditated. And about seven years ago, eight years ago, I started doing this. And since then, I've gone to meditation groups at roundups. And uh, I've, meditation has put me in a place that uh, alcohol never did. You know? I mean, it's amazing. So uh, a suggestion would be if you're not meditating... Get into action and do something about it uh, if you were like me. Uh, 
I asked my sponsor, we were reading around the 11th step, and uh, I said, what's this about thinking on a higher plane, Dick? You know, that's a quote from the big book, something to that effect. And I, he says, sit down, Dan, so I know I'm getting another. And he said, uh, it's like this. Now, I want you just to think of this word. Don't say it out loud. He said, I'm thinking of a word. It's a four-letter word. ends in K and means the same thing as intercourse. I don't say the word out loud, but think of it. And I said, Dick, this is unlike Dick. You know, he's a, you know, prim and proper guy from Boston. So I'm thinking, what's he talking about? And he said, Dan, the word is talk, T-A-L-K. <laughs> and he said, Dan, that's an example of thinking on a higher plane. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, this is a great deal. Uh, the uh, About a year ago, uh, I knew I had problems with relationships, and I wasn't getting much practice in it. So I listened to somebody, and uh, there was another 12-step group. And uh, I started going to it, and it has helped me immensely uh, in the last year on uh, relationships. So this is an AA meeting, but if you ever, if you, if you want to improve your relationships for more loving and caring, uh, there's help out there for us. Uh, I think that's about all I got, folks. Uh, thanks a lot for 12-stepping in tonight. Thank you. Nice job. Fast hour. Yeah. <laughs>